The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, I don't know about you, but did you catch the richness and fullness of those lyrics that we have sung together this morning? Like, those are not cotton candy songs, right? Those are songs that are rich and full and full of joy and hope, even in the valleys of life and the darkness. Lord, we, we have a God who is just so lavish us with his grace. And to sing lyrics like that, full of truth, this is, this is why we gather. Let's pray, to, let's pray together before we open God's word. Father, nothing in all of this world can separate us from your love. Not death, not nakedness, not famine, not sword, not enemies. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from your love. Give us a great ballast in all of life that will cause us to stand strong to believe that truth. That you are faithful when we are faithless. That you are strong when we are weak. That you are a conqueror when we are laid low. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, I pray that you will open our eyes, open our ears, that we will be able to, to, to feel the weight of your glory and worship you through our time of studying your scripture. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please take your copy of God's holy and perfect word and turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be beginning in verse 3. I do hope that you'll get into a habit of bringing your Bible with you to church uh, or that you'll, in today's age, that you'll at least have a tablet or a phone with you that you'll be able to open up the Bible on there so that you can follow along as, as we go through a text as I'm preaching a sermon. Because the, the type of preaching I do is the type of preaching that it opens up the Bible, it takes a chunk of Scripture, and just walks through the Scripture, and explains the Word, and hopefully applies it to your life in a way that's helpful for you today. And so the best thing you can do is to have an open Bible, either a, a, a hard Bible or an open Bible on your phone or tablet, so that you will see how we're working through Scripture it's not dependent upon me in my opinion, but it's dependent upon the Word. And so that is, that is our study this morning. Scripture can be technical. Another reason why you'll want an open Bible in Scripture is Scripture can be technical sometimes. I mean, truths in the Bible hang and fall on phrases of Scripture and how they're ordered. Truth and heresy often fall on one or two words of Scripture. And so we walk carefully through Scripture and so that we, we handle it and understand it in a way that God intended. In the text we're studying today, Paul's writing to, uh, to Christians in the city of Philippi. And what we're going to see in today's text is Paul expressing affection for the believers there and then Paul teaching the believers there about the salvation they have. So one of the benefits of expository preaching and just going verse by verse through Scripture is, you come across texts in the Bible that 
maybe the preacher would never pick to preach on. If he was just pitch, picking subjects out of the Bible, you come across texts that he may have never picked. And this is a text that I have to say that in its totality, maybe I never would have picked except for this is what the Lord has for us in Philippians. And so what we're going to see is Paul expressing affection in this part of the text and salvation, teaching on the salvation. This is what the Lord has for us today. And I just wonder what sort of affections are stirred in you when you consider the church, the gathered body of believers the universal church around the world, but more specifically, what affections are stirred in you as you consider the local church that you're a part of, like here at Abner Creek? What is affection and love for the local church to look like? And maybe, maybe you don't have any. Like you search your heart and you're like, I don't, affection? I mean, that, that's kind of a strong word for a group of people that gathers together. Maybe, maybe you don't feel any affection for the local church. It's just it's kind of something that you do every now and then, and, and, it's, and you know it's kind of it's part of being a Christian, but if you're honest with yourself, I mean, there's a lot of introverts in the world that we'd much rather just kind of be alone. Like, what's the big deal about gathering together as the local church? There's, there's no affections. Well, affection for the church is one of Paul's emphases in this text. But we'll also see Paul teaching about salvation. Uh, if these are believers in the text, why is Paul teaching about salvation? They're already saved, right? Why teach further on it? Well, I would ask you, what, what good would it be for you as saved believers in the Lord to learn more about salvation? Well, I, I would ask you, how would you answer questions like, you know, when someone say, says, are you saved? Well, saved from what? Right? We use that term just very, you know, routinely. But what are we saved from? And what are we saved to? How are you a Christian? And, and how do you stay a Christian? What's your role as a Christian? And can you stop being a Christian? These are some of the things that we'll study this morning. And before we actually get into the text, I, I want to explain how Paul is writing here in this particular section. It's like, it's like a ping pong match, okay? So Paul's going to start talking about one subject over here, and then he's going to talk about another subject over here, and then he's going to come back and talk about the first subject he started talking about here, and then he's going to go back and talk about the second subject he talked about here. Maybe not the way that you or I would write it, but this is the way that the Lord has laid it out in Scripture. And so he's going to express his affection for the church, and then he's going to talk about their salvation. And then he's going to express more affection for the church. And then he's going to talk more about their salvation. So as we look at this text, be on the, look at, be on the lookout for that ping pong match, if you will. Chapter 1, verse 3, we'll start here. Now, he's going to start with affection. Listen, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now I'll switch to truth about salvation. Verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Back to affection. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. 
because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 9, back to truth of their salvation. And is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And so we see Paul in this section express affection for their salvation in verses 3 through 5. And then he expresses truth about their salvation in verse 6. And then he expresses affection for their salvation in verse 7 and 8. And then he goes to conclude in verse 9 through 11 about the truth of their salvation. And we'll actually study verses 9 through 11 next week. It's too much to bite off at one time. And so let's take these one at a time in the scriptures as they come. First affection and then truth. Here's the point that I want you to take away from this letter concerning Paul's affection for the church, and it's this. Church, Abner Creek, consider the joyful partnership that you have because of the gospel. Consider the joyful partnership that you have because of the gospel. We see the joyfulness of Paul because of his partnership with these believers In good times and bad times. I mean, just listen and look at the language that Paul uses for these believers in the text. In verse 3, I thank my God. Thanksgiving there. Verse 3, in all my remembrance of you. Verse 4, making my prayer with joy. Verse 4, because of your partnership in the gospel. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way. Verse 7, because I hold you in my heart. And verse 8, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. Clearly, Paul is expressing affection for these believers. If you don't see that in the text, if you don't hear it in the text, men, let me tell another woman that you hold her in your heart and yearn for her with all the affection and watch how your wife responds. She will tell you, you are being too affectionate. Don't do that. Paul is clearly affectionate toward them. I mean, could you ever see yourself feeling this way about the local church? And I joke about it, but Paul's not expressing any type of romantic affection at all for these people. Rather, Paul's expressing a deep thankfulness. An extreme gratitude to know them. An appreciation that's so rich that he uses language like this. He loves these people. It's a real love. And what's the primary reason for his affection? Look at the text, verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel. Verse 7. It is right that I feel this way. Why? For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul loves these people so much because they are partners with him in the gospel. Even in hard times, like Paul being in prison, they don't abandon him. When others are ridiculing the message and spitting on the cross, they stand with him. I mean, you gain deep love and partnership and appreciation and affection for people that you link arms with, that you go to battle with, that you stand for truth with, that you die defending with. For Paul, the church was his family. 
These are people he would spend eternity with. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the believers that you share church life with today are the believers that you'll be with for eternity. It's the church. So one time Jesus, maybe you'll remember this, one time Jesus was teaching. He's in a room full of his disciples and his mom and his brothers come up to the house. And so a servant comes in and says, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers. It's the church. Special bond between the people of God. Am I... I would ask you this morning, do you know this? Do you know of this bond? Are you sharing in this bond? Or is this foreign to you? Is this foreign to us? Church, consider the joyful partnership you have because of the gospel. It is the church that Christ died for. It's the local church that God has given the greatest mission to in all the world. It is the local church that gathers together under the privileged title, Children of God. We are in Christ, under God. We are the children of God, adopted into His family as God being our Father, and He is King over all. So take the church in all of her mess, in all of her history, in all of her blemishes, and all the assaults upon her, the church that runs to Christ for redemption, this group of people are the people in Christ who have been partnered together and commissioned by God to show the supreme worth of His glory by making the gospel known among our neighbors and to the nations. Take that church and put it up against, put it up against any group of people, any organization, any crowd of purpose, and it is the church, the local church, that eternally survives. It's, it's, it saddens me of how low a view we Americans have for the local church today. And maybe you've heard the perspective, I love Jesus, but I can do without the church. Like, Jesus in my quiet time, that's great, but it gets too messy around other people, so I'm just better by myself. The church is not just a social club that our grandfathers and grandmothers attended and then dragged us to. Something that we go in and out of when it's convenient. The church, however weak she may look at time, however insignificant she looks to the modern eye, it is the local church, it's the gathered group of people under Christ, instituted by God for eternal purpose. We're not just a people that meet weekly and sing songs and hear someone preach and then go to lunch. And, then, and hopefully we beat the Methodists and Presbyterians. Right? We are the people of God gathered together. And oh, that the church would wake up to this reality of this eternal purpose that God has given us. To feel the weight of the task that we hold. And who we are and what we do and the purpose that we rally around is not trivial no matter how routine it feels week in, week out, week in, week out. I mean, men and women throughout history have given their lives and have died defending the very truth and purpose that we say we gather around every week. To gather to worship Jesus and 
to intentionally make disciples of Jesus so that people are satisfied and God is glorified. Fortune 500 companies will end. Global markets and world initiatives will conclude, but the church is the only institution with the purpose that stretches beyond this life into eternity. And to thank church that you and I get to be a partner of that. To think that we and our partnership have earthly initiatives that reach into the span of eternity. And that is a bond that overflows in sacrifice and affection and appreciation for one another. Oh, that we would have a, a view of the church, a view of its mission that goes from here up to here. The church may have bad days. The church may have ugly days. The church may let you down. The church will let you down and disappoint you and hurt you deeply. Some of the sharpest gut punches I've received have been from people in the church. But let me remind you, Christ died for the church. And who are we to abandon her? Charles Spurgeon said this, in my view, the greatest Baptist preacher ever to live, he said, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. The local church. We're in this together for the long haul. We're playing the, the long game under the banner of the gospel. So let's make it a joyful and affectionate partnership as we see Paul express here. Consider the joyful partnership you have as a church. And so Paul expresses this affection that he has toward these people. He shares the salvation with but now we're going to see him teach them about their salvation. God means for us to learn about the salvation that we possess. And this is the summary statement I would offer to you about what he teaches in this text. If you're a note taker, you'll want to write this one down. Summary statement about what he teaches about salvation. The salvation God delivered to you at some point in the past and the salvation that God has secured for you in eternity is the salvation he means for you to walk in now. So the salvation that God delivered to you in the past and the salvation that God has secured for you in eternity is the salvation that he means for you to walk in now. Salvation has a past, present, and future reality. In other words, if you are in Christ, God saved you. God will ultimately save you, and God means to keep saving you in the moment. This type of language is all over the Bible, and we're going to see it in our passage today. Let's take them one at a time. We'll only cover the past part and the future part. Next week will be the in the moment salvation. Number one, God gave you salvation, past tense. If you're in Christ, God gave you 
that salvation. Paul expresses affection because of their partnership in the gospel. And when did that partnership start? Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you see that there is a, a starting point for them in their salvation? Paul calls it the first day. And we're going to see language like beginning in verse 6. Look at there. Verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. In other words, the good work that God began was the salvation that he gave to them on the first day. These people are partners in the gospel because they received salvation from God that started on the first day. The work that he will complete is a work that had a beginning for them in history. We're actually told of the beginning for some of these believers in Philippi. Remember in Acts 16 when we study about when Paul came and he he shared the gospel with a lady named Lydia and she heard the message, she believed. And then when the jailer heard the message of the gospel, he believed They went from never hearing the gospel to believing and being converted to becoming partners, all of which happened at a single point in the past. No one is born a Christian. No one is born submitting to God as their king. Everyone born after Adam, except for Jesus in the flesh, everyone born after Adam inherited Adam's sinful nature. Listen to Romans 5 on this. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then later it says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. This was the greatest, this is the most horrific spreading of disease ever to be seen in history. The disease of sin in our sinful hearts. It makes me nervous when I ask someone when they became a follower of Christ and they respond, well, I've always been a Christian. Romans 5 clearly says otherwise. The one sin of Adam led to condemnation for all men because all sin. Psalm 51.5 talks about how we were conceived in this sinful nature. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in in sin did my mother conceive me. If If you're a follower of Christ today, trusting in the finished work of Christ, at some point in your life, you were converted. Meaning, you went from rebelling against God in your sin, to trusting in salvation for that, for, to have payment for your sin. At some point, just like Lydia, God opened your heart and you heard the message and you believed and you placed your faith in Christ. You repented of your sin. Trusting that Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin and that his resurrection from the dead proved that the death was sufficient for you. If you're a believer... That happened to you at some point in your life. God gave you salvation. And friend, perhaps you're here today. You're maybe not a part of this church. Maybe, maybe you are. But maybe you're here today and you're, you think, that's never happened for me. I've never turned from my sin and trusted in Jesus. 
For years, maybe you've assumed the faith of your parents or assumed that just coming to church is good enough or assumed that if I do these good things or if I'm better than the person beside me, then that's going to be good enough. And maybe today is the day that you realize that, you know, I've never asked God to forgive me of my sin. I've never placed my faith in that when Jesus died, he died for me. And when he rose again from the grave, that that proved that his death was sufficient for me. Well, friend, if, if that is you, let today be the day of salvation. Right in your seat, I would encourage you to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm broken over my sin. I'm sorry for my rebellion against you, but I place my faith in Christ and trust that he has paid the penalty for my sin. It is that simple. And God will save you today. God's grace is sufficient for you today. And your day in history of salvation can be today. If today you've trusted in Christ for the first time, would you please let me know? I'll be out in the back after the service. I'll be mingling. Just shake my hand and say, hey, today I trusted Because I want to help you in your walk with Christ. Now some of you remember very vividly when God saved you. And you can tell me the date. You can tell me the time. You can tell me the place. You can tell me the wind speed. You can tell me the clouds that were in the sky. If that's true, that's great. What a a wonderful gift from God. But I want to be be careful here and clear, and and I just ask that you listen carefully to what I'm about to say because some of you need this encouragement. Just because God saves us at some point in our past, that doesn't mean we have to remember all the details of how it happened or even when it happened in order for you to be saved today. Our salvation is not ultimately dependent upon a decision at a point in history. Our salvation is dependent upon a Savior that saves us in history. Here's what I mean. I don't, I don't know exactly when I was saved. Now, I hope that's not a shock to you. Who is this guy we have preaching saying he doesn't know exactly when he was saved? If you were to ask me, When were you saved? I'm I'm not exactly sure. There are several points in my life that I could point to as strong possibilities of when I first believed and when I first was converted. I'm not exactly sure, but here's what I do know. I have repented of my sins and I have placed all my faith and all my hope in Christ for salvation today. I believe that his finished work is sufficient for me. I'm not exactly sure when I first realized that or when I first believed. I'm not 100% sure. What I am 100% sure of is that I believe it right now. You know how many people live in guilt because they can't remember a date. They can't remember an aisle they walked or you know, who exactly led them. You know how many people feel that guilt? And you might say, oh, wait a minute, preacher. You're telling me you can be a Christian and not exactly remember when it happened. But I'll just ask you, are you physically alive today? Like in the flesh, breathing right now. Do you remember the uh, details of your birthday, the day you were born? I don't know anybody who would say yes, and yet you're alive today. There's an illustration I've heard over the years. I I haven't heard of a better one, so I'll keep using it. 
If you were to ask me, Donald, how do you know that you're alive right now? What would you do if I went to my closet, my filing cabinet, said, let me see, and I got my birth certificate out, and I placed it, and I slid it? How do I know I'm alive? Because it says so right there. You would think I'm crazy. How do I know I'm alive? I know I'm alive because I'm breathing right now, and I'm talking, and I'm, I'm moving, and I'm, I'm flailing my arms around, Right? I'm alive, not because necessarily my birth certificate says it, it's because I'm living right now. How do you know that you're a believer? Yes, it's great if you can point to a, a time in your past, but maybe you don't remember. How do you know? You're, are you trusting right now? Are you repenting of your sins daily? Are you, are you trusting that His work is sufficient for you? Just because you don't remember all the details doesn't mean it could not have happened. What is important So are you trusting today? And if you're truly trusting today, the point is, at some point in your history, God Almighty did that. Some of you remember like it was yesterday and some of you don't remember at all. But our salvation is not dependent upon a decision in history. Our salvation is dependent upon a Savior that saves us. This is the first truth that Paul teaches them. He reminds them God gave them salvation on the first day God began to work. And this is the second point. This is the final point that we'll see in this text about our salvation. Number two, God secures your salvation for eternity. God secures your salvation for eternity. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this. What is Paul so sure of? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence here is, excuse me, is not the same as human hope. As if we're hopeful something will happen. Instead, Paul's confidence is a certainty. It is an absolute surety that... Any, and without any doubt in his mind, it's not a hunch, it's not a good prediction. Paul is confident because it is a fact. And what is the fact he's so sure of? That the work of salvation God began in Philippians, he will complete that work. It is a certainty. This means, if you're a Christian today, if you are truly in Christ, truly trusting his finished work, God will persevere you in that salvation all the way to the end of your life. The true believer will not lose the salvation God has granted because God will not allow it to happen. He will complete his work. God is the giver of your salvation and God is the protector of your salvation. Your salvation is a work he began and a salvation, your salvation is a work he will complete. This is the overwhelming truth of Scripture. In Romans, Paul considers this great Christian path on the way to eternity. He's, he's reminiscing about all the work that God has done. And in Romans 8, verse 29 and following, it says, From the Holy Word of God, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. 
Brothers and sisters, what we see in this this glorious chain of salvific work from God, we see this glorious chain that, that God accomplishes the Christian salvation in the Christian life. He foreknew and he predestined. He called, he justified. And all of these are past tense. He knew us and he, he formed us and he planned for us and he called us and he justified us. And how does the, how does the eternal chain end? It says he called us and he justified us and he glorified us. Past tense. Now, if we haven't yet been fully glorified, which we haven't, I haven't <laughs> there's no one fully glorified in this room, let me tell you. If we haven't yet been fully glorified, why does it say, past tense, God glorified as if it's already been done? Because in the mind of God, the work he begins, he will complete. He has called us and justified us. And one day we will be fully glorified because in the mind of God, it's done. Because he will do it. If you are truly a follower of Christ today, God will keep you a follower of Christ. Because God secures your salvation for eternity. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Imagine putting your name on everything you ever started. Like, you know, a sticky note. Anything you start, you put your name on it and you stick it on there. Now, wouldn't that energize you to complete it? Because if you don't, well, then it looks really bad for you. I mean, who did this job halfway done? Oh, Donald, all right? No, it looks, looks bad for you. And so you start a load of laundry and you put your name on it. Do you know how many times I've forgotten to put the laundry in the dryer after I put it in the washer and Collier calls me out on it? Lovingly. No, if you put your name on it, you want to finish it because if you don't, it looks really bad on you. A job half done. Imagine cutting half your yard and the neighbor's riding by like, Who's that wacko? Imagine washing half your car, cutting one side of your hair, or at work, starting lots of initiatives but never completing them. Do you know what we call someone who starts a lot of things but never finishes it? Words like lazy or scatterbrained or uncommitted. That's words we would use for someone like that. If your name is on it, you better finish it. So when I was in middle school, my cousin and I had a grand idea that we were going to bury some of our valuables on the family farm in hopes of 20 years later, you know, we'd go back and dig it up and see the crazy things that we buried and just reminisce. And so we had a plan. We were going to dig a six feet, six foot deep hole, six feet wide. Well, we probably went about three feet deep and about four feet wide, if that. It got too hot, too hard, too tiring. And so we got a, just a little bit in. And we said, you know what? Forget this. Like, let's just drop the stuff in there and cover it back up. So we dropped them in there. We started covering it back up. Well, guess what? Filling in that big of a hole gets too hot, too tiring, and too long, too. So we stopped halfway in that as well. And so it left this big divot in the middle of the field. And over the years, grass grew back over it. And we forgot about it. Well, a few years ago, we hadn't thought of it really since. A few years ago, I remember, um, I remember we were sitting around. I think it was at maybe a Christmas gathering. All the family was around, and uh, we were we were talking about this, how we had done this, and you know maybe we should go back and look forward. And we said, I wonder if we could even find the spot that we buried it. 
and it's ironic that my grandfather's here today because it includes him in the story. We're sitting and we said, I wonder if we could even find the spot. And I remember my grandfather chiming in and said, I could tell you exactly where it is. I feel it every time I hit it with a tractor. <laughs> All right? Every time I ride over, it's, oh, that's where they dug the hole. And so now there's a big wide divot in the middle of the field and it's got mine and my cousin's name on it. It's remembered for, yep, that's the hole that Donald and Jordan never finished. The hole they were too lazy to complete. Believer, when God began your salvation, he put his name on it. And when has our God ever been too lazy, too forgetful, or unable to finish a job? One commentator writes this, We go into the artist's studio and find these unfinished pictures covering large canvases and suggesting great designs, but which have been left either because the genius was not competent to complete the work or because the paralysis laid his hand low in death. But as we go into God's great workshop, we find nothing that bears the mark of haste or insufficiency of power to finish. And we are sure that the work which his grace has begun, the arm of his strength, will complete. End quote. He never leaves the job undone. He never grows tired. The job is never too hard. The work of salvation he began in you, he will bring it to completion. And praise the Lord, Right? And not only did God begin the work of salvation, Ephesians 1.13 says, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so the salvation is a work of God that God has started in his love and a work that God has sealed in his power. God's power to hold you is stronger than sin's power to lure you away ultimately. God began your salvation. He put his name on your salvation. He sealed your salvation with his power. And he has promised to complete his work in you. And you can rest easy in his hands. I'll close with these final thoughts. If you're a Christian today, what makes you think that you'll wake up being a Christian tomorrow? Or next week? or 10 years from now, or 20 years from now, or when you're on your deathbed, what makes you think you'll still be believing in Jesus? I mean, what if you lose your mind, develop Alzheimer's or dementia? Your hope of remaining a Christian tomorrow or on your, death de- on your deathbed cannot be in a one-time decision or in your ability to keep your strength or keep your believing. Your hope must be in the God that will keep you. Your salvation is ultimately about Him. Whatever valleys and trials this life leads you in, whatever valleys and trials and whatever disease may attack your mind, let your hope be this. I am sure this, that He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. And there's no greater security in all the world. So you, you take everything away, Everything is stripped down and you still have eternity in Christ. It cannot be touched. Moth, rust cannot destroy it. Thieves cannot break in to steal it. Dementia cannot consume it. There's a hymn, an old hymn, called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Oh, what a mighty fortress our God is. Right? 
So when everything's blowing and everything's, you're losing everything and everything's going away and everything seems weak and frail, you run to God and you hide in the fortress that he is and he is a mighty fortress. And in that hymn it says, one line is, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, like dementia may attack. You may be stripped completely of everything you've ever known or ever have been known to know. A shell of yourself. The, the body they may kill. God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. The salvation that God gave in the past, He has promised to secure it for all eternity. Church of Christ, there is a kingdom. There is a kingdom destination that we are partnered together toward. And this is the kingdom of God that he has put us in. And this is the kingdom of God that he will ultimately bring us home to without fail. He's faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Oh God, what a mighty fortress you are. And it's so humbling to stand in your presence as a weak servant proclaiming your powerful word. It is so humbling to gather with your church that you have established and instituted for eternal purposes, Lord. So humbling to think that we are a part of your family. Lord, raise our awareness of that reality. And as we strive together as a church, and we partner together and we link arms, Lord, may all of our hope and trust and security be in you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you have put your name on us. And you will finish the task you have begun. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a time of reflection and response. The first part is reflection, where you just sit quietly as uh, the team leads us. I invite you, if, if, if you have trusted in Christ today, feel free to come and let me know. Let me know after the service. I want to help you in your walk with Christ. We are, we are the church, and if you have trusted in Christ, you have, you have joined, in an informal sense, the church of Christ. And others for you today, I hope your heart has been encouraged that if you're truly in Christ, that God's going to keep you. So maybe this time of reflection is just a time of worship where you say, thank you. Thank you, God. Whatever this time of response looks like for you, I invite you to be obedient to the Lord and to follow Him in it. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.